Good evening. Let me invite you to go ahead and grab the Heavenly Library, take down the book of 1 Samuel, and go to chapter 14. 1 Samuel chapter 14. I'm going to jump straight into the lesson tonight, so just hold on because here we go, all right? While you're turning to that passage, let me just set the stage for you real quick. Israel is at war, and they're fighting the Philistines. That's a story you hear all the time, isn't it? But this time it's a little bit unusual from the standpoint the Philistines want to fight, the Israelites mm, not so much. And there's a very good reason for that. The Philistines have an army that is really ominous. 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and as the text will tell us in chapter 13, they have so many warriors they can't be numbered, they're like sand on the seashore. And then the Israelites aren't exactly coming to battle, if you will, well, ready to really fight even in the, well, you might say, even in the most modest of ways. You see, the Philistines have big swords, chariots, horsemen. The Israelites have, as it says in the text, farming tools. <laughs> I don't know about you, <laughs> but I don't know if I want to take a rake to a sword fight, all right? Now, granted, they probably had some instruments that were fairly sharp, maybe could do a little bit of battle, but they didn't exactly have the armory that the Philistines had. And they're hiding. They're hiding. And the Philistines are mocking them because, oh, they're hiding in their holes. And here's what's even more challenging. The Israelites don't exactly have a leader who's willing to go out in front and give them courage. Saul, <coughs> excuse me, is hiding. Even though he's head and shoulders taller than everybody else, even though he is God's anointed, excuse me, <coughs> he's hiding. But then there's a man named Jonathan. And Jonathan is going to sneak out. <laughs> excuse me. <coughs> You got anything down here? Anything? Water fountain? Coke machine? Anything? <laughs> Jonathan and his armor bearer sneak out. And they're sneaking because Jonathan does not want to alert his father. And this brings us to our text. In 1 Samuel chapter 14 and in verses 6 and following, we see that Jonathan is not going to go alone. He takes an armor bearer with him. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> and what we find is that Jonathan, Jonathan is fighting with a friend. He's one of those great unnamed heroes in Scripture. And although he's not mentioned by name in the text, he is a hero who is truly worthy of great adoration and praise. Notice their conversation in verse 6. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us. 
For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, Do all that's in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to these men and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and we will not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we will go up. For the Lord has given them into our hand and this shall be a sign to us. Now I want to stop right there and I want you to try to visualize this scene. It's so important. It's so important when we're looking at God's word that we slow down and visualize what's taking place. First of all, you notice that it's Jonathan and his armor bearer on one side of a ravine and then the Philistines are on the other side. Bless you, my son. Well done. Seven dollars. Man, I'm at Disney World. Good night. How about if I preach to about midnight? Will that lower the price? Oh, it's free. I like how that works out. All right. So Jonathan is armor bearer on one side of the ravine. All the Philistines are on the other side of the ravine. And Jonathan's saying, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go show ourselves to them. And you'll notice in the verbiage, he keeps saying, if they say come over, then we will go up to them. Well, it's kind of interesting. What you find separating them is a ravine, and each side of this ravine has its own special name. One side is known as Bozes, if you look back at the beginning of the chapter, which in the Hebrew means slippery or shiny. The other side, Sina, means thorny. So more than likely, it's a representation of the topography as well as what you're going to find in the natural setting. So one side's probably a lot of rocks. The other side probably very thorny from a lot of bushes. Nonetheless, here's a picture of it. And what Jonathan is actually proposing to his armor bearer is this. If they say come over, we're going to crawl down one side and then crawl up the other. Anybody here have a military background? Anybody? You know anything? You know what one of the first rules of war is? Never be below your enemy. You're a sitting duck. Your enemy has all the protection. You're wide open. So what Jonathan is actually proposing to his armor bearer is this. If they say come over, we're going to crawl down one side and crawl up the other and we're going to give them all the advantage in the world. Verse 11. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, look, the Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they've hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison held Jonathan and his armor bearer. And they said, come up to us. We want to show you something. Now, I'm not exactly a Hebrew scholar, but I, I have had a brother in my life, as you know. And anytime somebody says, hey, come here, I want to show you something. Generally, you really don't want to see what they've got to offer. And I'm going to assume this is no different. Can, can you imagine you're at war with somebody? You're, you're in a big showdown and they say, hey, come on up. Would you go? 
Would you go? Well, notice what Jonathan says. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come up after me. For the Lord, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and his feet and his armor bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer, killed them after him. And that first strike which Jonathan and his armor bearer made killed about 20 men within, as it were, half a furlough of a length of an acre of land. And there was a panic. A panic in the camp and in the field and among all the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked. And it became a very great panic. I want you to see and understand that what's taking place here is something that is truly remarkable. Because what you have before you right here in this story are two men who understand the rules of the road. Number one, we are accountable for ourselves. No matter if anybody else is going to fight, no matter even if it's our own king, no matter even if it's our own father, if we've got to be the ones to stand up for what is right, if we've got to be the ones who are going to go out and defend our nation, if we've got to be the ones that have got to go out and do what is right, we're going to do it. And then secondly... They do it under the most, just really, really some of the strangest conditions ever. Things that you would say take, there's no sense in this at all. They're going to put their trust totally in God. To crawl down on their hands and knees and then crawl up to these men. And fight an entire garrison on their own. They fear God, and they keep His commandments. And what you see with Jonathan and his armor bearer is you see two men who are knit together, and they are knit together to fight for the Lord. This word armor bearer is a very interesting word when you look at it in the Hebrew. You can actually break it down into two Hebrew words. One suggests the idea of a vessel of war. The other one, the lift to carry. But here's what I want you to grasp and understand. This isn't just some slave. This isn't just some low-level ranking person who John says, you know what, I need somebody to have to carry my armor around so I don't have to carry it all the time. Ah, here, I'll get you. No. Uh Uh-uh. Now, the person who's going to carry his armor is also going to be the person who's going to keep all the instruments of war ready for war. And even more importantly, in this relationship, it's someone who is willing to go to war with you. Not just say, all right, here you go. Go have fun. Hope you win. It's somebody who's literally going to go with you. And I want you to look at the way they fought. Notice notice the way it's shared here in the text. You'll notice that Jonathan, Jonathan is going to go first. And what you see is in verse 14, Jonathan goes in and makes the first strike and then the armor bearer comes in after him. It was literally as if both men had each other's six. They had each other's back. And so Jonathan would go first real quick making a blow to the enemy. The armor bearer comes in behind him and finishes him off. 
working together in need of each other. They took on the entire garrison. Who does that? Who does that? Well, I suggest to you it's two men who have a lot in common. You'll notice that in verse 1 as well as in verse 6, they have a very common mission. Let us go over to this garrison. Let us be the ones to fight the Philistines. Although there's 600 plus of our own countrymen hiding in their home, in their holes, let us go. We're going to fight even if nobody else will. We have a mission and we have a duty to protect God's people, to protect our land, to fight for our Lord. They had a common mission. You'll notice that secondly, they had a common heart. And isn't it interesting to note and listen to the armor bearer. Listen to the words of this unnamed hero. Jonathan comes up to him and goes, you know, I got a crazy idea. Why don't we go over to those Philistines? Why don't we go fight them? And listen to what he says. Do all that's in your heart. Think about it. That's more than just trust. That's even more than just devotion. There's a kinship there that is filled with love. Because your heart, and I know what's really important to you, and I know what is your passion, is my passion as well. And then you see that common action. They knew exactly what they were going to do. When I get to the top, says Jonathan, I'm going to run in there real quick. You come in right behind me. I'm right behind you. You just go and swing and I'll finish them off because I'll finish them off and they won't come back after you. You go get them as hard as you can and then I'll take care of the rest, says the armor bearer. And they did. They did. And then I would suggest to you that in verse 15, God got involved a little bit. These great two men of faith, God says, I'll help out in the earthquakes. And then you know what happened when all the other Israelites who were hiding kind of hear all the commotion and they look out of their holes and they see the Philistines taking off. You know what they did? Hey, let's go get them, guys. Woo! And you imagine Jonathan and his armor bearer and they all run by them. Now, yeah, now you come out, you big chickens. Yeah, go get them. They're running from you now. But it was all because of Jonathan and his armor bearer. Jonathan and his armor bearer. If you would, skip, uh, skip ahead just a few pages and go to 1 Samuel chapter 17. Here's a battle that you're probably very familiar with. That one may not have been that familiar to you. But here's one you've probably have heard before. Has anybody here heard the story of David and Goliath? Two, three of you? Who's the preacher here? What is going on? I can share this story in about 45 minutes and catch up with my lesson. Who else heard David and Goliath? Oh, bless you. Yeah, hey, yeah, hey. 
Yeah, this guy's already threatened to preach at midnight once. We don't need to actually follow through with it. You know that story. That was probably years. I don't know how many years, but years later that a young shepherd boy will go out and stand up to a giant. What I want you to notice is what happened right after the battle. When David had defeated Goliath at the end of chapter 17, you'll notice that David will come and he will bring... (laughs) This... This isn't the part of the story that you see on children's walls, all right? Uh, He brings the head of Goliath, you know. (laughs) You don't actually see that in the kid's nursery. You see David and Goliath. You don't see this part of it, understandably. But he comes up to the king. And he carries with him the spoil of victory. And in chapter 18 and in verse 1 it says, And as soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David. Because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and he gave it to David and his armor, even his sword and his bow and his belt. I tell you what you see here is you see a warrior who is inspired by a other warrior. I, I, I got to throw this question out there to you because it's, it, it, it's something that to me has just always been a little challenging. If Jonathan is such a brave man, And he's already shown his faith in many ways in a very dramatic way. Why didn't he fight Goliath? You ever wondered that? Why didn't he go out there? Uh, Was he he wounded? Was he wounded? Did he have torn ACL? Was he in rehab? was Was he maybe a little frustrated with his dad? He's been carrying his dad all these years. He goes, all right, dad, now you need to go. Come on, Dad, be the man I know you need to be. Come on, just once be the man. Was that it, or was his faith struggling? I don't know. The text doesn't tell us. But I do know this. As soon as he saw David, and he saw the mission and the heart and the action of David, he said, that's the kind of guy I need in my life. And they became brothers, close-knit brothers. The word covenant actually means to cut into pieces. And and what Jonathan actually does is he gives himself to David. He gives him the robe. He gives him the armor. It's signs of great humility. It's signs of not just kinship, devotion is what you see here. Now here's what you got to keep in mind. There's many reasons for him not to make David his friend. You ever thought of that? Number one, first of all, there's personal desires. The the, the word's already probably getting around and everybody kind of knows the kingdom's been taken away from Saul, but, but technically who should really be the next person in line? If Saul is the king, who really should be next? 
Well, Jonathan. And now you're going to make friends with the guy who's going to go and take your father's throne? Really? Can you imagine what his friends were probably telling you? Everybody else inside the house of Saul is going, what are you doing? Secondly, there's another good reason not to be so knit to David. And you're going to see this bear out a little bit later in this story. And that is David hates or is hated by Saul. Just out of curiosity, kids, you ever had that friend that your parents didn't like? How'd that go? And your parents probably had a very good reason. Saul didn't. How's that go over? And then you know what else is kind of interesting? Is that three times in the story of David and Goliath, David is referred to as a youth. He's a teen, more than likely. Jonathan's much older. What in the world is he doing making friends with somebody much younger? There's an age difference here. But what he sees in David is something that's very important. He sees a common mission, a common heart, and a common action. And one thing you never, ever, ever, ever see in the life of Jonathan from then on is a failure to act and defend. And he will live the rest of his days in his boldness and in his service to the Lord. Why is that? Because Jonathan understood the rules of the spiritual road. As we already pointed out, he is certainly going to be accountable for his own actions regardless of what his father does, regardless of what the nation does. He's going to be a man who's going to fear God and keep his commandments. And if you go back and you look in the story, just like Joseph, he doesn't acknowledge God as just being God. God is the Lord. And in all caps, it means what? Yahweh, the name of God. And then what you see is number three. And you have this revealed in the life of this godly man that I must surround myself with godly people. I must surround myself with godly people. Uh, scripture all over the place tells us about how it's so important for us to surround ourselves with people who have a faith and a trust in the Lord. Uh, if you think back to the Proverbs, Proverbs 13 verse 20, He who walks with the wise will be wise, but the companion of fools will be destroyed. And then you think back to the days of the children of Israel going off into the wilderness and then eventually going into the land of Canaan. What was the rule? What was the adamant rule that God said over and over and over and over? over and over again, when you get into that land, when you get around those people, don't what? Don't marry them. Don't let your children marry them. They will turn your heart. Now why was that so important to God? This may sound like it comes out of the book of First Phil, which if you would ever like to read it, it is an excellent book, and I'll share it with you. But have you ever wondered what caused the flood? Well, everybody was wicked. The intent of man's heart was wicked. It tells us in the text, wicked. Yeah, but wicked about what? 
What was it that started it all? What, what was the wickedness coming from? You know what's interesting? When you go back to Genesis chapter 6 and in verse 2, it says that the sons of God, and we can have a big debate on who are the sons of God. Were they men or were they angelic beings or whatever? But it says when the sons of God saw the daughters of men were attractive, they took them as their own wives. As any that they could choose. And the evil was bred. And beginning right there, the wickedness grows and grows and grows. You know what led to the flood? Evil companions. To the point that everyone had filled their life with evil companions. Turning your Bibles to the very first psalm. There's 150 psalms that we have in our Bible, but I want you to notice what is the subject of the very first psalm that is recorded. The very first psalm. Notice what the emphasis in the teaching and the song is all about. Blessed is the man. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits at the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Did you hear what the psalmist is saying? Blessed and favored is the man who doesn't go near the wicked. Because if he goes near the wicked and he walks by them, he's going to be tempted to stand. And then if he continues to stand in their presence and make friends with them, then he's going to sit right down into their sin. It is a progression. It is a progression of wickedness. And it all centers around friendship. But the godly man, the godly man is going to focus his heart on the Word of God. And I want you to grasp, I want you to grasp how often the Word of God warns us, warns us over and over and over and over again about the people in our lives that influence us, the people in the lives that that, that have great impact on us. It warns us over and over and over again to be careful. You ever thought about Eve? Can I just give you a little advice? If a snake ever talks to you, Run! Run! I, I, I don't care. I don't care if you're able to t- speak in partial tongue like the house of Slytherin from Harry Potter. You run! I, I, I've, I've always been kind of clearly, clearly back then, clearly back then, women weren't afraid of reptiles. <laughs> you ever thought about it? There really weren't too many bugs that were annoying either. It was a great world. I mean... Most people, you just go, a roach comes out, and they're gone. But she had a conversation with Satan. What? Lot got consumed by so much of the wickedness of Sodom that he offers his own daughters to the men of Sodom. Who does that? You might remember when he had the choice. Ah, Sodom. Ah, I can handle it. The Israelites. You know what Moses actually said to the Israelites? Don't follow the crowd. You thought your mom came up with that line. It's been around since Moses. Don't follow the pagans. Samson. 
You talk about a guy that struggles in friendship. We'll talk more about him in one of our later lessons. Solomon. <laughs> i got to be careful with this one. Women were the problem. Too many of them. Can you imagine Samson's credit card statement each month? But the wisest man in the world The wisest man in the world was corrupted by his companions, David. I've often wondered if Jonathan had still been around, would the Bathsheba thing have happened? If Jonathan had still been around, would David have had somebody say, Hey, what are you looking at? Where are you going? Peter. Somebody who was with the Lord every day for three years in one moment, in one evening, will deny the Lord not only three times, but one of those times will be because a servant girl said, hey, aren't you one of those Nazarenes? Uh, 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 no, 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 no. How many times does Scripture have to make it very clear to us? Whoever we associate with is who we are. I get amazed every year when I get to camp of how it's just so predictable that kids will find their kids. You ever heard the adage, birds of a feather flock together? Oh, it is so true. It, if I, had, I invited a kid to camp one year. I've been trying to get him to come for a long time. He's kind of a shy thing. Played video games all the time, so I knew I was going to have to detox him just to get him to come to camp because he's on the screens all the time. And I'm like, I'm hitting his parents going, would you quit that? Just let him come to camp. He'll live without it. Well, he was miserable. And I, I knew it was going to be hard for him at first. He didn't have a lot of friends. And he was actually, he was one of the older kids in age, but not necessarily in maturity. And, 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 and by the second day, we lost him. I was like, oh, no. I begged his mom for years. And I well, we can't find him. And we're looking all over camp trying to find him. Where is this kid? Where is this kid? Where is this kid? And I found him in the lunchroom at the wrong time with the wrong group. But he had found some younger campers who were just like him, and they were already together and having a ball. I just, I couldn't help but laugh, because when I walked up to the table, I went, ah, yep, they're all the same. They're all the same. Because like attracts like. And really what that tells us, what that tells each and every one of us, is that whoever is that person that we want to hang around with, whoever is that person that's that huge attraction for us, that's really us. To a large degree that we're being drawn to. And how many times do we catch ourselves saying, oh, no, 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 I'm not like them. No, 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 I'm going to change them. No, 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 no. No, Scripture tells us and warns us. Like attracts like. 
But, but it's in the same way, if you look at this rule of the spiritual road, it reminds us that there is a very, very powerful proverb that comes from chapter 27, verse 17. is iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friends. And what you see by many of the great heroes of Scripture, i.e. Jonathan and others, is that they surrounded themselves with godly people. It does go back to the story of Noah. Well, well that is a horrific story. I want you to think about who was on the ark with Noah. You, you think, oh man, his sons. Wow, they must have been something. Wow, his wife. You know who really impresses me on the ark? You know who really makes me go, wow, are the daughters of the sons. Think about it. Their entire family was outside the ark. They've been with these boys for years, and their boys have been building this ark with their father for a hundred years. They've been putting up with what family and friends were naysaying about this activity, but their faith was in the faith of their father, and their father was Noah, and Noah's father was God. Moses. The great leader didn't go alone. He had his brother Aaron, Jethro, and Joshua. Elijah has Elisha. Daniel, who did he have? Please don't call them Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's their Babylonian names. Their mama named them Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael. They may have answered to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in public. But in their hearts, they were Hebrews. And they were close to Daniel. Cornelius has godly friends and relatives. Isn't it interesting when Peter shows up at the house, he calls all those close to him to come and hear? Paul has Barnabas, Silas, and fellow workers. And even Jesus himself. Even our Lord himself. Clearly he had his apostles. But he had his very even closest friends, Peter, James, and John. What about us? Who you got? Now, turning your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. I want you to see something here. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 23 and 25. You, you've probably heard Hebrews 10, 25, haven't you? You ever heard a good sermon on why you should be at church? Hebrews 10, 25, forsake not the assembly. Rah, 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 you better be here, it says right there. But this passage really isn't about just coming to church. In fact, for some of you here tonight, this is your verse. You just may not know it. Is there anybody here tonight who is just an aggravating person? Who's willing to admit it? Point them out. Point them out to us. You see something? I mean, they're an aggravating person. Yeah, right there? Stephen, I can see that. I can definitely see it right there. Aggravator, I can see that, yeah. This is your verse. This is actually your license to aggravate. I kid you not. In Hebrews chapter 10 and in verse 23, we're reminded that we've come together. And we've come together for a reason because we are here to encourage love. And not just encourage love, but we are here to stir up love and good works. That word stir in the Greek actually means to agitate and aggravate. 
That's exactly what it means. Now, not in an obnoxious way, Stephen, but it's to be done in a way, it's to be done in a way that moves people to action. It is the idea that when we come together, every single one of us have come together with a purpose to stir up our brethren, to lift them up, to motivate, to encourage, to impose zeal and reason with one another. Uh, There's some great, great heroes of faith that aren't exactly biblical characters. They're known as the first fathers. And if you ever read church history, and you go back and you read about the first fathers, these are the men who wrote and shared many of their life experiences. These are some of the men who even share scripture to us in the second, third, and fourth centuries. They're referred to the first fathers. One of them was named Tertullian. And if you think back to that day and age and you know anything about time and history, the Christians during that age were persecuted and persecuted heavily. Being a Christian was not popular like it is today. All right, You didn't just throw it out there like people do today. Often Christians lost their jobs. They lost their, they lost their income. They lost their lives. One of them was named Tertullian. And Tertullian said this, and it's one of the most powerful statements I've ever read from some of the first fathers. He says this, this is Tertullian in the second century, quote, the leg does not fill the chains when the mind is on heaven. The leg does not fill the chains when the mind is on heaven. Is that not the kind of guy you'd want to be around? I mean, wouldn't you want to be around Jonathan and his armor bearer? Wouldn't you want to be with James and John and Peter? Even more importantly, wouldn't you want to be one of those individuals that people want to be around? so that they can draw closer to God. I want to leave you with a list as your take home tonight. And what it is, it's actually a little test. Don't worry. You're not going to be graded. At least not tonight. But it's a test of companionship. Scripture tells us that the righteous man is cautious in friendship. And so here's what I want you to think about. Here's what I want you to consider in every friendship that you have. And, and, and here's, let, me, let me define this so that you understand this very clearly. I mean, make this very clear from the very outset. Our Lord indeed was a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He was a friend to the ungodly. He was a friend to those who were on the outside. But our Lord also had an inner circle that influenced Him. And what I'm talking about are those who influence you and me. What's the first question that we consider? Number one, do you speak to them about their faults? And that may seem like an odd question. <laughs> so you mean, if I find a friend, I go and go, that's what you're going doing wrong. Oh, have you said, no, no, be careful. What I want you to see is what the scripture tells us. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. 
If you're truly a friend with somebody, you're going to have the love for them that when they're doing things that are contrary to the will of God or they're doing things that are questionable or they're doing things that are just in, in, just in need of more alignment, you have the love to go talk to them. But here's the problem. Here's the problem for many of us. We have people that we really, really, really want to be friends with. But we're afraid to say anything to them. say anything to her, she's going to get so mad. Or if I say anything to him, oh, it's going to get him so mad. Here's the deal. If you can't be honest with them, they're not your friend. They're your master. They own you. They own you. Because you're going to fall over backwards and you're going to do whatever you can to make them happy. And that's always going to lead to a bad place. Because if you can't be honest with them, then you don't have an honest relationship. I kind of had one of those David and Jonathan relationships especially when Cheryl and I lived in Dothan. And I was the younger guy, and there was an older man in the congregation. His name was Brother Moss, and he and I were just real good friends. In fact, Brother Moss and, uh, and, and his wife, did, we did a ton together. Uh, so Dot and Wes Moss, I'd hang out with them all the time. They would have the young preacher over, and we'd spend a lot of time together, play cards. He'd pick on me, this, that, and the other. And, 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 and one Sunday after I got done preaching, I had just finished and, you know, you go stand in the back like a good young preacher's supposed to do, and everybody's walking by and saying, hey, and this, that, and the other. And here came Brother Moss, and he walked straight up to me in the foyer of the church building that was crowded as all get out, and he goes, you're an idiot! I'm like, Brother Moss, why don't you say it a little louder? I don't think the church down the road heard you. And he went, okay, you're an idiot! What? He goes, I've same kind of how you are with women and what interests you in women. And he said, if that over there is not attractive to you, and he was pointing to Cheryl, then you got a problem. And he pointed to a young lady in the congregation who was teaching Bible class, visiting the sick, doing all these spiritual things, but didn't necessarily look and dress and act like everybody else in their early 20s. She was very responsible and godly. You're an idiot. I married her. <laughs> I have to call me an idiot more than twice. I got your point. <laughs> A couple of years later, after we were married, he did it to me again. You're an idiot. And I'm like, what? I married her. Come on. He goes, I, no, I see how you're treating her. And you don't treat her like a wife. You treat her like a friend, like one of your guy friends. And I don't think it's right. He hurt my feelings. But he was exactly right. A good friend 
will speak to it. Now, let me encourage you. You don't need the word idiot in that conversation. Probably not the best way to handle it. Okay. Unless you're really close. But can you speak to them and talk to them candidly? And secondly, do, do they speak to you about your faults? And are you willing to listen to them? I tell you one of the craziest things that I hear people say, and I, I got to confess, I hear it mostly from the younger generation, and you hear this all the time. It's the worldview of friendship. My friends accept me for who I am. That is the stupidest thing you could ever say. No. 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 Even our world understands friends don't let friends drink and drive. Friends don't let friends do things that are dumb. Your friend will not accept you as you are. Praise God you've got a friend who doesn't do that. They love you enough to talk to you. <laughs> Jacob can probably identify with this. <laughs> it's very common for after you get done preaching a lesson, everybody comes by and shakes your hand. Oh, that was a great lesson. That was a great lesson. I had a guy who told me I preached a great lesson that day, and I didn't even preach that day. You know, he's like, hey, great lesson. And I went, thank you. Yeah. But I'll get in the car on the way home and I'll find out what the real truth is on the lesson. <laughs> when Cheryl goes, I had no idea what you were meaning by that. What were you thinking? And every now and then I'll get one of these. You know, that seemed to go okay. Yes, put a star on that one. I'm taking it on the road. Because that's all you're going to get out of her. <laughs> But there's honesty there. There's honesty there. Do your friends persuade you to do anything that is remotely evil or even violate your conscience? Uh, Proverbs 14.7 says, flee the presence of fools. Proverbs 14.9, fools mock sin. You know what's interesting? In 1 Corinthians 5, in 1 Corinthians 5, the Apostle Paul says, don't even hang around a brother. Don't even hang around a brother if he's doing what is immoral. I tell you, sometimes that is a great challenge. Because just because somebody, quote, goes to church, just because somebody is, 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 quote, saying they're a Christian, doesn't mean that that's the person you need to be hanging around. I tell you, you want to figure out what people are like? You ready for this? It's real easy today. Everybody puts their life out there. Go look at somebody's Facebook Go look at their Instagram. And parents, I would strongly encourage you to go look at their Snapchat. We reveal ourselves by what we like. And you know what? Every single person, every single person who has fallen away from the Lord, you know what every single one of them has in common? Foolish friends. Every single one of them. Number four. Do they persuade you to run with the crowd? In other words, they're, 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 they're a good person, but they're just really worldly. Or, or they're, they're trying to be everybody's friend. In Proverbs 18, 24, a man of many companions will come to a ruin. In other words, you, you can't be the politician. 
You, you can't make everybody happy. In fact, James 4 verse 4 reminds us, friendship with the world is enmity with God. I tell you, if there's anything I would love and love, love to try to get across to all parents, is to be very mindful of how much world you're putting in your kid's garden. Remember the parable of the, soul, the soils? Remember that? Remember the weedy soil? The seed gets in the good ground, but there's weeds there, and the weeds grow up, and they choke out the Word. The weeds are the cares of the world, the affections of the world. You know what's scary? Is it more often than not, we as parents have planted those weeds, not necessarily on purpose, but we've planted weeds in the garden. And we've made athletic endeavors, educational endeavors, monetary endeavors, social endeavors. So many times more important than the spiritual endeavors. In a few weeks, we're going to have a bunch of new college students come. There will be some who are going to be in town, but they won't be at the first few services because they're going through rush. So they're going to miss the first couple of weeks of services because that's always on a Sunday. There will be many who in the first few weeks, because they're coming to the state university, who are going to be in clubs and activities that are always on Sunday and they're going to miss. And what you're going to see, and I see it all the time, is the more the distractions, the more the opportunities, the more of the world that is in their life, By year number three, they're gone. It's horrible. I used to think working in a college town would be the greatest and the funnest thing in the world, and at many times it is. But often it's the worst. And I found if I don't know the parents by name and the parents don't have me in their phone and I'm in their phone and we don't see them often and if we don't have parents who are committed to their kids' spiritual endeavor just as much as they are or more so than their educational endeavor, there's a high likelihood, there's a high likelihood we're going to lose that kid. And you know what happened? The weeds grow up and choke it out. And who put the weed in there? Who put the weed there? Fifthly, great question. Do your friends motivate you to serve the Lord with vigor? When you go to Romans 16, it's one of those passages, especially when you're studying an epistle like Romans, that it's in the very last, very last lesson, in fact, where you say, oh, by the way, Romans 16, read it and go on, and we never spend time in it. And I get it. I get it. It's almost like a genealogy, but it's not really a genealogy. What it actually is, is Paul is sharing with you all the people in his life, 
All the people in his life who make a huge difference in his life, who inspire him. You're wondering why Paul was so vigorous, why he was always so evangelizing, why he was always active and going and going and going, because he had a board of directors. No, I'm not talking about some weird board of directors like we have over companies today. These are the people who were on the board of his life, who were involved in his life, who inspired him. And he probably didn't get to see them very often, but he stayed in touch with them because they motivated him. Listen to these names. Aquila and Priscilla. You see that there in verse 3? What, what did they have in common with Paul? Notice, they risked their necks for my life. Uh, uh, Mary, a little bit later in verse 6, what does she do? She works hard for you. Uh, a little bit later in verse 9, you find those that are beloved. You find those that are belonging to the family. And then here's what's really cool. You find that every single one of them in one way or another is a laborer or a worker. In verse 13, there's Rufus who is chosen in the Lord. And more importantly, his mother, who Paul says is like a mother to me. And he says, greet them. These are good people. Surround yourself with great godly people. People who, number six, stir you. Stir you to spiritual action. They're the people who not only say, hey, you going to be at church? <laughs> They're the people who say, hey, who are we going to evangelize this week? Who are we going to visit? Who are we going to stir? What's our next project? Who are we going after? What can we do? Because they're the armor bearer who has your back that you're ready to go to battle with. Who do you want to go to battle with? with. Jonathan goes, I know. <laughs> Y'all don't know him. He's my armor bearer. I'll go anywhere with this guy. Anywhere. I can't wait to meet that guy one day. <laughs> I'll say, give me the real story. What really has happened? What was it really like? Because you don't have to have a big name to be a good friend. You don't have to have a big name to be a spiritual hero. In John chapter 15 and in verse 13, every single one of us are reminded that we have a friend. A friend like no other. Jesus says it like this, greater love has no one than this, than someone lays down his life for his friends. That's a friend. Our friend, the Lord Jesus Christ. Every single one of us need that friendship. And if that applies to you tonight, won't you come while we stand and while we sing?